This is a cast of a lot of, you know, uh, you call them journeyman actors. They're people who have been in the business for a long time. They're people who really have a strong sense of craft. And the, and the show itself, it's, uh, the dialogue is hard. It's not easy dialogue. You do a lot of it in uh, one take and you have to have, uh, you, you can't fake it. You're listening to The Taste Podcast. I'm your host, Matt Rodbard. Yes, Gideon Glick joined me in the studio for one of my favorite conversations in recent memory. Gideon is a prolific actor, having starred in memorable roles on Broadway, including Little Shop of Horrors, To Kill a Mockingbird, and in the original Broadway cast of Spring Awakening, and on television, including one of my favorite characters, the mysterious magician Alfie on the wonderful show The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel. Gideon is the co-author of the great new cookbook, Give My Swiss Chards to Broadway, the Broadway Lover's Cookbook. And we talk about the art of creating a great theater-themed recipe pun. Having Gideon join me in the studio was such a ray of sunshine. And I hope you theater lovers and food lovers out there enjoy this conversation. Gideon Glick, welcome to the Taste Podcast. Hello, hello. Thanks for having me. It's fun to have you in the studio. I just, okay, let's go over some of these. Yam Yankees, <laughs> Crab Array, Dear Melon Hansen. Oh, man. Oh, your book. <laughs> Give my Swiss charts to Broadway, filled with puns. You wrote it with Adam Roberts, who's a friend and, and it has been a guest on the Taste Podcast. Gideon, first question, what makes a great Broadway food pun. Well, I think what makes a really good pun is the scansion. So it <laughs> it has to, and then I'm going to refute that in one second. But I would say my favorite puns in this are are three penny opera, like three penny opera, or bunts on this island, like once on this island. So it has the same rhythm and syllables. However, I also like when that gets turned on its head, and I like something like. Chicken Breast Side Story or <laughs> My Fair Lady Fingers. So um, so there is not one uh, surefire recipe for a great pun. <laughs> but you've, you've made so many of them in this book. And I have to ask about how the book started. Adam tells a story on our episode, and I'll link to that. But how did you and Adam hook up over Broadway and food? Yeah, I mean, we were, uh, we were friends for a while. Um, we had hung out a couple times. I'd been to his place when I was in L.A. for food. Um, he cooks a mean, legendary dinner. Yeah. And we bonded over our love of theater. Uh, the, the genesis of the book started, uh, I, was t- <laughs> I had this idea of maybe a YA, uh, ch- a children's book about a Broadway actress who was also a pizza named Bernadette Pizza. Um, and from there, we started kind of riffing, and then the the cookbook was born. And we oh, thought, wow. oh, why don't we do kind of an homage to the Great White Way um, through food? Through food. And, and so you were just riffing, like, over during the pandemic, like, basically texting each other puns? Yeah, it was sort of a bomb, I will say. Like, <laughs> we, we kind of were texting yeah. back and forth. We had quite a lot. I mean, I, I think we probably had 100, then we called it to 75, and then when things were getting serious for the book, we called it to, to 50, yeah. 50 great puns. And the puns were what came first, and those were the most important thing to us, that it was illustrative of the show, and yeah. 
um, and that made us laugh. I mean, laughing my way through the book, and tell me a little bit about the the book's content. Like you're you're actually getting into a little bit of the history of food on Broadway as well, and and. Also, second part is, in, are you are you cooking all these recipes yourself too? <laughs> I am a bit. I will say it's funny that I uh, uh, we were talking earlier in the elevator. Yeah. I feel sort of like an interloper into this world because no. I am not necessarily the 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 cook of even my relationship. My husband <laughs> is the one that really does all the yeah. cooking, or I'd say the majority of the cooking. Yeah. I think I've I've gotten much better since the cookbook because I've been curious and uh, we've done a lot of recipes. He's done them. I've done them. Yeah. Um, but. Uh, it's just very funny because I'm not the I'm not a food guy. I mean, I love to ingest and I love well, yeah. I love to go out to eat, but uh, I'm not the chef of, of of the house. Well, Gideon, let's be clear about food media. You're you're Tony Tony nominated actor. That's hard. Like <laughs> writing about food. Like let's not let's like anyone can do it. I I love that you are part of the cookbook world now. You are inquisitive, you're smart and funny, and that's all you really need. So oh, let's that's get real. Very kind. Thank you. You're, you're, this is a, I feel, uh, I feel much more confident now. All right. Well, you should. And, and I want to hear a little bit about food and Broadway because, um, like Adam, I'm a huge fan of Broadway. My wife, Tamar, um, huge Spring Awakening stan head here as well. So we'll get into that a bit. But I want to hear, I, I, I have some Broadway actors in my life, so I've heard it from them, but like, you're doing this show like eight days a week. Yeah. It's it's a real endurance. I mean, it's athletic. It's an athletic event, no matter what role you are. Like, how are you thinking about food when you're doing a show? Yeah, I, I mean, it, it really has to be, a, uh, uh, I would say, a consistent part of your schedule. I, I metabolize very fast, so mm-hmm. I have to eat at certain times so that when I'm performing, I'm not dealing with any indigestion or, or uh, anything related to food. Oh. Uh, so I really like, I eat typically like two hours before a show would start. Um, and I, I like kind of hearty meals that aren't too filling. So I'm a, I'm a big poke bowl fan. Yeah. Um, anything with sort of a rice base for me and just simple either fish or chicken uh, is right up my alley. Sure. So you're talking about two hours before you're, you're this is like before a two o'clock matinee and an 8 p.m. So you're eating twice in these bigger meals for these double days. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then I'm also pretty famished after a show. Yes. So that's also like a different way of eating. But I'll say like what I eat at night after a show is very, very different. That is like more for, um, I would say, purely pleasure. Um, yeah. And uh, I don't have to worry about about being on stage at that point. Have you ever had a moment on stage where sometimes food didn't really settle well? I mean, <laughs> it's, I, I repeat, it's real endurance test doing a Broadway show and especially doing it for more than um, a couple months. Um, yeah, no, I've been very, very lucky in that, in that <laughs> sense. Um, I also like don't, once I'm performing, I don't really have an appetite either. I think it's, I'm kind of in a zone, so I don't have that and I feel like everything kind of shuts down. So, but that's why I also like to eat early. So yeah. if there is any indigestion that happens before the show. Yeah. I mean, uh, I want to hear about the after show traditions because New York, you know, we have such great traditions with food and Broadway. There's Joe Allen and Sardi's. There's like Rum House, which is like a newer bar, a cocktail bar that a lot of Broadway folks hang out at. Then you go downtown and there's like Phoebe's has got a scene too for all the downtown theaters. So, I mean, are you, do you have like any favorites that you go to after shows? Yeah. I mean, it also, it depends on like where your show is obviously off Broadway is different than Broadway. Sure, um, definitely. But I think Bar Central is a really, really popular yeah. one. I'm a big fan of it. I think it's it's chic, it's swanky. I love 
the drinks. Um, the food is good. I would say I since I stopped eating red meat, yeah. um, that's kind of uh, mm. limited what I can enjoy. Mm-hmm. But I used to really, really love the the potato skins there. But their their chicken quesadilla is really good. I, no, it's a shrimp quesadilla actually um, that I really love. So Bar Central, let's, let's set that up. Are there a lot of actors there after the after the shows? Like catching up i mean there's got to be goss like lots of goss <laughs> yes you it's know, a, within the cast it's too. a true watering hole i mean you <laughs> run into people from your season too so like everybody yeah. that's uh, doing a show a lot of people end up there and uh it's a lot of people you know from other shows also people you know from from the past and 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 people you want to meet it's a it's a really fun fun little joint i mean they don't even have a, a um you know the door is is unmarked. It's right on top of Joe Allen's. It's it's really cool. Yeah, it's the it's the bar above Joe Allen, and it's it's definitely worth checking out. And I feel like uh, everyone needs to come and do and 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 see a show this fall. I mean, yeah, or I whenever. Who I'm not gonna say this fall. Like whenever. <laughs> I mean, are you are you interested right now in any shows? I I, I just gonna jump into that right now. Any shows right now that you're liking? Um, I saw a Kate Berlant show. Oh God, uh, yeah. at the Connolly Theater a week ago, and I have not stopped thinking about it. She's quite a genius and the show was an extraordinary exploration of her mind and yeah. and and she's just she's just so talented so i had a blast at that i got to see uh i got to see leah michelle's funny girl i went to her opening mm-hmm. that was really really wonderful she really killed it um that's like i think what i've seen recently so leah michelle was your castmate on spring awakening she you guys was. you guys so i want to get into that cuz there's this a cool documentary about that that you were the original broadway cast um at spring awakening and and it seemed from that documentary that you guys kind of got along and hung out a lot the cast yeah i mean i you know we were so young and yeah. I, I think when you don't have a community that's intact at that point cuz you're so young the people you're with become your community. I think as you get older, obviously your show is a community because it's somebody you see. It's people that you see every day. But when you're young, your network isn't as large. So these people become your network. And and also you're, you're, with a show like that and at that age, they kind of become your family yeah. just because you're you're bonded by something that is, is such an anomaly. Um and so that's kind of how I think how we all see each other. It's uh, a magical thing um, being in a play or a musical at any level. But then, of course, when you're at the Broadway level and you're got the hottest show on on this of the season, it's got to be special. How are you in the cast like after Spring Awakening, after, you know, the things really started to pick up? Because it took a little while to get, you know, for it to pick up and gain an audience. What were you doing after like food and drink wise? You Take us <laughs> back to that era. I mean, this is like. A while ago, too. Yeah. Well, it's funny. You know, in the documentary, we talked about this bar, McManus. I actually don't have <sighs> the the strongest memory of <laughs> hanging out there. But again, we were underage. So I exactly. think we had to be very uh, uh, um, strategic about where we would go. I remember there was a bar called Vintage that was in Hell's Kitchen that we would frequent. But a lot of times it was house parties because yeah. we were underage. I mean, we were really underage. Yeah, you were. I mean, it was the cast of young um, uh, adults uh, finding their spring awakening Really, truly one of the greatest works of ever in the history oh, of Broadway. That, that's so kind of you so to say. So great. And, uh, I mean, it seems like funny girl, Leah Michelle. this is the role she was born to play. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's really interesting. I was thinking about the original funny girl, and the original funny girl was Barbara Streisand, obviously. Yeah. And a lot of it, yes, it was about Fanny Bryce, but a lot of it had to do with this kind of, like, um, mystique that Barbara Streisand was creating for herself. Oh, sure. And also, it w- they ha- there had a lot of parallels uh, with her husband at the time, Elliot Gould, who was a gambler. And so I, 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 it's funny how 
there is this whole world outside uh, that, like this narrative that the audience is bringing in when they see the original Funny Girl, and we're now doing it the, the same. We're mm-hmm. doing the same thing with Leah because there's been this whole narrative about is she going to play it? When will she play it? She sort of did play it. She sort of did, but she wasn't originally cast, and there were some changes. And uh, yes, and and she did it on on Glee, and yep. uh, she's been so um, uh, attached to this thing for so long. So it was really it was really cool, and it was really moving to see it come to fruition. I. Um, I, I can't wait to see it myself. Thank you for uh, having the Broadway Minute on the Taste Podcast. Oh, of course. I appreciate it. So, But many of our listeners will know you from The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, and you play um, Alfie on the show, and yeah. it's such a memorable role. I just think it's a real fan favorite. Oh, well, thank you. Wonderful show. And, and you know, it's, it's going into its fourth season? It's fifth, fifth and final. Season. Fifth and final. Wow. Yeah, yeah. Um, are you on the final season? I am, yeah. Okay, wonderful. I can't wait to see you. So, okay, this is a show that has um, amazing, amazing set design. And it's just, like, such an attention to detail. And this, I, I swear this was related to food. And, like, <laughs> the Amazon money. Like, I mean, it's a seriously, like, well-funded show. Um, and the creators, like, go at, you know, pay no expense. And, and really, it's it's a detailed show. So what is the craft service table like? Because I'm thinking the show, they must actually pay attention to the craft service a little bit better than other shows. Well, it's interesting. Uh, uh, what what Maisel does that I've never experienced on any show, and I don't think I ever will again, um, usually when you do a table read, it's kind of antiseptic. It's like yeah. you're just on these folding tables and on these folding chairs, and you're in a room, and it's boring to look at, and you read the you read the episode, and you're done. Mm-hmm. They decorate per episode. So, for instance, there's one episode wow. that I, I, I think it was um, Rose went to this horse farm. And so all of a sudden we walk in and this room has been completely transformed. There's astroturf everywhere and there are horse statues um, and they have a sense of occasion. Uh, unfortunately for me, I joined during the COVID era, but yeah. I know that back in the day there would be things like chocolate fountains or a carving <gasps> station. Really, they would go... Wait, a chocolate fountain yeah, on yeah, set? on set. Uh, wow. it, it, for this table read at Steiner Studio, which yeah. is where we shoot. And uh, I'm I'm so um, sad that I didn't get to be a part of at least that part yeah. because people talk about it with, with hearts and stars in their eyes. Oh, my goodness. Um, do you feel like when you're when you're acting um, on in a TV show, not on Broadway, are you... Um, are you eating in a certain way? I feel like there's um, a moment you have to like obviously pump yourself up to. You're, you've got hours and hours of waiting around. I mean, do, do you? Is there a favorite food that you eat before you're hitting hitting a scene? That's a good question. You know, you there's only a. You, you have your lunch and you have uh, your hot meals that are, are sporadic. I, I try to eat like a lot of fruit because um, mm-hmm. it's kind of sugary and it keeps me hydrated. Yeah. And um, but I kind of am in the uh, uh, the zone of eat eat always. Whenever yeah. someone offers you food, just take it, and then you can decide <laughs> what to do like uh, with it. Uh, you could leave it leave it or take it, um, but at least you have it. But I will say eating right before a close-up is can be kind of, um, that can be kind of painful. Yeah. Sometimes you just, you get really tired and it's not a smart move. You just don't want to have anything in your teeth too. You don't want to have anything in your teeth, but I always, I bring floss. Always a, have floss. I'm inside. a heavy flosser. Okay. Uh, Tony Shalhoub is on the show and, and Tony is a, uh, a restaurant investor and a big foodie. Like I wonder, I know you don't really interact with him like uh, in terms of the, 
the uh, the, the plot, but do you know him at all? And have you? Because he like he's a he's a really like a big food guy. Yeah, Tony's amazing. He's um, as wonderful as he kind of seems. Yeah. Um, and I got to know him, even though we didn't interact that much on the show, I got to know him a bit through the table reads, but also mm. we've run into each other a lot because he's a theater guy, so we've run into each other in the theater world. Cool. We once had, when we did the the magic show, the magic show was this, uh, I did this big magic show towards the end of the season. It took three days to yeah. to, to, to shoot it because was, it was a pretty complex scene. It involved the audience, it involved me, it involved Rose. Um, and then afterwards, on the third night, um, we all kind of went out to to eat, but I will say it wasn't a. Uh, I wouldn't say it was a, a foodie uh. type restaurant. It was just kind of a Mexican hole in the wall. But uh, I think it's funny when you are with people. It was me and Rachel and Tony. And when you're with people who get recognized, you get a lot of free stuff. Um, but unfortunately, <laughs> the stuff that you get is our shots. And so oh, the majority oh, of I the evening, going. <laughs> I don't think I don't think any of us really have a, a, a firm recollection of. Oh, so you wrapped that wonderful episode and you shot that Cherry Lane Theater. Yeah, we yeah, did. I love that. Uh, that is a, such a great episode. But after that, you wrapped that. You had some tequila shots. We sure did. Oh my goodness! I mean, it's it's such a great um, moment to, to actually hear that the cast gets along because I feel like you know we, we we watch TV and we're like, okay, these people hate each other, but no. it's not. No, this is not that kind of cast. This is a this is a cast of a lot of of you know uh, you call them journeyman actors. They're people yeah. who have been in the business for a Definitely. long time. They're people who really have a strong sense of craft. And the and the show itself, it's uh, the dialogue is hard. It's not easy dialogue. You do a lot of it in uh, one take, and you have to have uh, you you can't fake it. And so there's a really yeah. good um, work ethic and and a lot of joy. People I, are really happy to have a job like that. It's interesting that you you kind of do behind the scenes because it it seems like it would be a very it's a complex show and journeyman. It's like you guys are pros. Let's get it. Let's call it as it is. It's a, yeah, it's a thrill. It's a thrill to, to be a part of that show. While growing up as an actor, are there any onstage food scenes um, that you remember um, either going well, going poorly? Because I feel <laughs> like when we're in the theater and we see a food scene, you really want it to be accurate, but like it can go so south so fast. Like there's like a frying pan, there's like nothing in it, and they're cooking it. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, the the tricky thing about eating food on stage. I've had to do it a couple of times. Is that it's all like it's pretty bad food. It's just because they have to microwave it like basically right before you yeah. eat it, and so it's a lot of frozen stuff, and you're just kind of. Um, You'll see this actually on camera a lot. You'll see a lot of actors just kind of put their forks in their plates and just kind of move it around. But you, you'll you see that they don't actually put it in their mouths a lot. A, I think maybe a bit of vanity, but also for continuity purposes, yes. it makes it really tricky. And so um, I always find it really fun to watch film and television <laughs> and see how people are eating or what, what they're doing to avoid eating. Absolutely. It's a good point. I, I saw Raul Starbarza do a, a play off-Broadway before the pandemic where he actually cooked on stage. Yeah, yeah. I, it, I, I didn't get to see that, but um, I can't remember the name. Of it. I'm, I'm bummed. I'm forgetting because it, it was so great. And then, like, to actually see a meal prepared on stage during a scene—it's so cool. It's so cool. I yeah. wish there was more of that. Yeah, I agree. I think one of my biggest fears is having <laughs> to prepare uh, food on oh. camera or something, and just being so uh, so bad at it. Gideon, you are a cookbook author, right. so this You're is right. going to happen. I, forgot. I have confidence now. No, it's going. I think. Um, Maybe uh, some advice. Rehearse. <laughs> Just rehe- if you rehearse it once with Adam, I'm sure you're gonna do some TV. Finesse. Uh, I love it. I love. Um, I love the book because it, it also. Uh, 
it, the recipes are great. Like Oklahoma, like fried eggs on farmer a bread um, with with cowhan potatoes. Like what's what's that recipe all about? Oklahoma. Um, yeah, uh, uh, it's a. I mean, it's an egg dish. Uh, yeah, it's it's uh, it's fantastic. You know what we tried to do with uh, with these recipes. Obviously, we went pun first, but then we yeah. wanted it to be evocative of the show as well. Um, and so with Oklahoma, it's kind of this like hearty American dish with the with chicken breast side story. You have plantains, so you you have yeah. you have something of of. Puerto Rican flair, but then you also have chicken, which is this kind of American dish, and so you're seeing the, the you know the the American gang versus the Puerto Rican gang. Yep. So we wanted to be in dialogue with the show as well, like even with Sunday in the Pork with George. There, um, uh, we used uh, we used peppers like uh, of different colors. Uh, to be evocative of the painting. Of Sarah, yeah. of color and light. <laughs> I love that. Speaking of Oklahoma, did you see the revival in the round? I did sure you see did. it? I loved it. You I saw it, it at St. Anne's and then I saw it on Broadway and I nice. was a big, big fan. Big fan of that. That was a cool one I, we got to see before the pandemic. I mean... And food. They're, and they gave out food. Exactly. So the front row, uh, those ticket holders had um, a meal or, or some kind of pastry during it and, you know... Waitress has famously done that um, yeah. when that was running. They did and, a Sweeney Todd downtown yes. where they made pies as well. I saw that. That was great. I did. I saw that. Did not. I've never actually bought the food ticket, which is a mistake. I should buy that. Yeah, especially the foodie. Exactly. What is my problem? I feel like um, I have to ask all actors about the bear. Have you Have you interacted with the show at all? I love it so much. Oh, you watched it. I love it so much. We binged it in a second. It kind of felt like theater, I will say. Like the the the. I don't know, maybe just the way it was formatted or something. It just was, it really won us over. Incredible performances, too. It's cool that you say that peer-to-peer for the actors. We had um, Ayo Debris on the show, and we had She's Courtney Storer. incredible. She's amazing. She's and, incredible. And, and I think the way they shot it um, certainly evokes uh, a theater uh, mentality. I think that's what they were doing there. Yeah, I mean, there's a sense of, especially like the set, for the most part, is the kitchen. And yeah. So you, you do feel like you're on this Tiny set. I mean, I remember that one episode. I think it was episode six or seven, where it was seven. Just, it was that like the one take. The one take. I I wonder if they really did it in one take or if they fudged it. Have you asked? I Ao kind of alluded that there was maybe some takes. It wasn't. Um, I, I I can't remember what the creator said on the record, but it, I think it was very very true to yeah. what they were trying to do there. And it was so impressive. Oh, it's a great show, and I, I just can't repeat enough to, to check it out. Um, so, Ma- so Maisel, season five, final. You've wrapped this. You've already filmed it. Uh, we're filming it right now. Oh, you're filming it right yeah. now. Yeah. Oh my goodness. What can you say? What can you say about this new season? Um, uh, <laughs> I don't know if I'm allowed to really yeah, say anything. I would. I, yeah. I don't want to get you in trouble, but I, <laughs> I, I feel like there's going to be great, great. Uh, moments with uh, tying up some loose ends there. Oh, for sure. And, you know, they're they're landing the plane. So. Landing the plane. And so what about you? What's your future acting? Uh, what do you have booked right now? What's going on? Yeah, yeah. Um, I just wrapped the TV show in a movie. Um, I, it's so douchey to be like, I can't talk about I it. I know. No. I'm not allowed to talk about it yet. It's but, the world um, we're in right now. I know, I'm sorry. But they're really cool projects and I'm really excited yeah. about them. Uh, and so I guess keep your keep, keep your eyes and ears open. If we run this, we'll, we'll update your bio. And, um, <laughs> Sounds good. So I want to know, is is there a play that you, or music, musical theater, it could be either form, that you just want to want to do? I just want to ask you this. Yeah, it's a good question. I get asked this a lot, and I never really have an answer. I mean, yeah. sometimes I, I think about, um, I think about the Glass Menagerie playing Tom would be really mm-hmm. really cool, and being able to do Tennessee Williams was one of my favorite playwrights. I mean, I mean, his writing is just it's astonishing. But 
I look back and like I, I've gotten to do some of the things mm-hmm. I wanted to do. Like I, I got to play Seymour and Little Shop of Horrors yeah. and Jack and Into the Woods. These were things that were so much a part of my childhood and me wanting to be uh, in in the theater. And so I, it's strange to look back and be like, oh my god, I, I actually got to do do those in really cool productions. And that that is, uh, I feel very proud of that. Oh yeah, that's great. I mean, the, the Seymour role, what a what a great role. Um, the film version highly recommend that. But oh, did you I see agree. the the new the new one that they put up uh, well, the, the new little shop? Yeah, that's what I was a part of. You were a part of that. Yeah, so. yeah. So uh, Jonathan Groff uh, originated it, Got it, and then I replaced him. So I did that for a couple months. Oh, that's and right. It was just a thrill. We saw that. Yeah, we missed you on that one. Okay, it's 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 a great show. Oh my god. Yeah. I I, I mean that show. Talk about. No, like there is no fat in that on the, in that show. It is lean. It is mm-hmm. lean. It runs fast, and it, it really there's just there's no waste of time. Yeah, and and what about um, new directors or new playwrights? Anybody you really want to work with? I mean, Daniel Fish, who, who did that Oklahoma. Yeah. I, I, I find his work really fascinating and and complicated. Sam Gold is somebody I've, I'd really like to work with. Um, Annie Baker's a, a playwright that I find. Um, uh, Mesmerizing, Brandon Jacob Jenkins mm-hmm. as well. Yeah, absolutely. Wow, yeah. that's that's a great. Yeah, Brandon Jacob Jenkins. Yeah. So tell me, um, when you're when you're meeting with um, a director to do a show, I want to tie it back to food because I feel like you have that moment when you're when you're meeting and talking about the about the work that you're gonna you're gonna you're gonna do together. And like, are you having a, like a stiff drink? Are you doing it over <laughs> coffee in the morning? Are you doing it um, between uh, you're working and it's between. Uh, Shows and yeah. it's like crammed in because I, I feel I mean, like it's sort of all of the above. Yeah. I think it depends on your schedule. Obviously, I mean, I think I prefer to do it drink oriented. I like uh, I like to drink. So. Yeah, yeah. But it could either be coffee or it could be alcohol. I think uh, there it's a it's a stimulant, so it gets I you love it. it gets you engaged. And so, second part of this question: Is there a recipe that you would like to tackle that you have? really been kind of thinking about while writing this book? Yeah, that's a good question. I, this is going to be more of a general answer. I love it. My, Let's go there. My dream is to be able to go into the kitchen, open my fridge, and make something from scratch and not and not use a recipe. So uh, that is the, the kind of uh, clarity of mind that I would like to achieve, where I can just throw something together. It's something my husband can do that I'm very envious of, and I feel a little... Um, uh, paralyzed <laughs> by that because I'm so worried about doing something wrong where I overcook yeah. or, or, or undercook and I could, you know, There's poison. no rules, Gideon. Well, there's food poisoning. I mean, there well, is. Yes. With, with, with raw meat, you could kill somebody. <laughs> well said. There, is, there are some rules, right? <laughs> and so I'm a little uh, frightened of that. <laughs> I mean, okay, let's talk about your husband. What is he making? Because there's got to be a few dishes um, especially if he's cooking after you've done a show. I mean, that's talk about a nice. That's a great partner right there. Yeah, for sure. I mean, after a show, I don't think I get. I don't yeah. get the cooking because it's so yeah. late. And yeah. So he's he's kind of uh, yeah. he's down for the count. Yeah. Um, but he has some really good signature dishes. I, you know, he has this uh, um, from the Otolenghi cookbook. There's this chicken that he always does. It's mm. absolutely delectable. I actually, I you know, I'm underplaying myself. I have the salmon dish that I really like to make. Ooh. Um, so I guess I could make it without looking at a recipe, but there's always, but that's because that's the one dish I've made. So, so many, salmon, many are we roasting it? Are we broiling it? Is I'm, it? I'm a bake. I, uh-huh. I like to bake it. Again, it comes with a, uh, uh, 
I, I find baking, it feels like a more secure way of yeah. getting it evenly cooked. Keep the temperature, like, at a good level. <laughs> yeah. No no high-temperature cooking, smoke up the house. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. So are you uh, putting, like, pomegranate molasses and, and maple syrup and sweet? Are you going more savory? What's the— uh, I actually use, like, a Dijon mustard. Ooh, you go in that uh, direction. Yes, with the, and a little bit of parsley and yeah. lemon and— um, uh, some olive oil, and it's, it's a pretty simple dish, and a little bit of honey, and it is really, really tasty. That's a great combination. I love Dijon and honey on salmon. Are you going wild caught or farm? Are we, I'm, you know, <laughs> podcast getting you. You can't duck duck this question. I'm sorry. We used to have a really good. Uh, <laughs> uh, we used to go to this farmers market in Brooklyn when we lived in Brooklyn, yeah. and it was it's actually I think one of the best fish markets in the city. It's in um, uh, Park Slope, yeah, uh, or Prospect Park, and so we used to do. Uh, some nice, some nice wild organic salmon that I I do miss dearly. I love having a farmer's market salmon. You're gonna pay a, a, a princely sum for it, but it's so worth it. It's so worth, it, especially with fish. Fish especially. can be, fish can get funky. Um, a few more questions. Are you, are there restaurants um, now that you're uh, you're in the city? You're living in the city that you like just love, like your go tos. <sighs> Yeah, I mean, I like, um, there's a Middle Eastern restaurant uptown called Dagon, which mm-hmm. I really, really like. Um, uh, we went to Junsik, which is a delicious. So cool. Delicious. Love that place. Yeah, me too. Uh, I think d- during the pandemic, we got, because there wasn't much to do, once restaurants started opening up, we started trying to be very adventurous and, yeah. and going to explore. But I'm also like, I'm a big Italian mm-hmm. fan. Uh, Resdora is really, really delicious. I highly recommend. We'll talk about Tony Shalhoub. He's an investor in Wait, the restaurant. Wait, he is? Did oh, I did that? not even know that. Yeah, so that's what I'm saying. He's, I love Residor. We had the chef on the podcast. Got so it. Yes, that is excellent. I'm a big Italian nerd. My husband, for some reason, I, <laughs> I don't know what it is, but Italian is not his thing. Oh, no. Okay. So whenever I uh, meet a friend for dinner, I'm always, I will always choose Italian. So I that love I can, that. I can get my, my fill. Gideon, we asked all guests on the Taste Podcast if there was a dream food book or cookbook project that you could work on without the burden of time, meaning you have no deadline, or the burden of budget, meaning you have unlimited money. I know you're just about to put up a great book, but there's got to be another book in your mind. What would that book be? Well, you know, I would hope that maybe this book is so successful that we can run a series on them and um, keep churning them out because I think they're really fun and uh and they've kind of opened up my world, and so I would hope it does it to other people too. And so I'd hope we can we could keep making them. Gideon Glick, thank you for joining the Taste Podcast. Thanks for having me. Brian Noyce, welcome to the Taste Podcast. Hi, good to be with you. Um, I am very happy to talk to you. I want to hear a little bit about. The second book, because a lot, a lot of times, you know, you get the debut and it goes well and, you know, you kind of like life gets gets in the way and you time flies and you don't have a second book. But, you know, Red Truck Bakery, there's now a second Red Truck Bakery farmhouse cookbook. How did you land on writing a second book? Um, I think I can thank the p- pandemic for that. Um, we were on lockdown. Uh, I just had a shoulder replacement. The governor closed everything and... My spouse, Dwight, and I hightailed it out to uh, Fauquier County, about an hour west of here where the bakery is uh, and where our little farmhouse is. And mm. I took my grandmother's recipe books and files um, and a list of um, projects that I wanted to work on for, for new item, items for the bakery. And uh, 
just started in on that. And then I, um, I kind of caught on that as others were being locked down across the country, they were, um, families were cooking through the first cookbook and posting on Instagram moms and kids and muffins and cookies that they found in the Red Truck Bakery cookbook. And uh, I thought that was pretty cool. It kind of gave me the background that other people are doing what I'm doing and baking. And um, then a, a woman who runs a home design studio uh, outside of Seattle, who, which, which sells our, the first book, posted a video of a local judge and her adult daughter who were also um, holed up in their house during the pandemic. And they had cooked or baked their way from front cover to back cover through the whole Red Truck Bakery cookbook. And I didn't know anything about it until this woman posted that Instagram video. So I just thought it's comfort food, it's family activity together, and um, let's, let's be um, inspired by that and kind of come up with a new cookbook. Um, we're also on the edge of the Shenandoah Valley and it's very fertile farmland and we have a lot of farmers that we work with and all of them were growing and there was no place to sell their products since people were just not leaving the house to go to a farmer's market, let alone, you know, I don't think any of the farmer's markets were running right then. Um, so it kind of inspired the, the um, local produce aspect of this. It's kind of a farmer's market cookbook as well. Got it. That's so, so let me, I have a couple questions. First, you, uh, you left your home with a pile of books when you were going, when you were debunk, you know, uh, decamping from uh, your home to the farmhouse. What, were some, what was in some of those books and what were those recipes? You know, they were my grandmother's kind of church books. Um, everything's, she was an old uh, one year, one room schoolhouse school teacher. So everything's in this beautiful cursive handwriting. Hmm. And uh, it's, it's from all her friends, from her church. And it was it was everything. I you know I looked through that and I couldn't believe the amount of recipes f- calling for persimmons and raisins and um, molasses. Um, so so I kind of zeroed in on some of those things. So so I, I took that and and, and that kind of inspired it. It's the the cookbook. I didn't want to just be a rerun of the bakery with more desserts and breads and muffins, but it's 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 that farmhousey kind of savory cookbook as well. There's a lot of vegetables. There's a lot of stews. My grandmother's Brunswick stew is in there, and and I tell little stories about each of them. I'm a storyteller, but I've also got this backlog of family lore that just just is poured into. It. What a dream to get your family's cookbook and recipes into the public domain. I mean, I think a lot of we, we get in touch with a lot of our, our readers and they, they'll they'll often, you know, give us family recipes and memories or, or writers will pitch those articles. But you actually got it done. And I think that's cool. The, the weirdest thing was um, as this was wrapping up, I had already sent the manuscript off to my editor. I was desperate to find the one family lore uh, cake from the 1850s, which was called the Noise Birthday Cake. And I couldn't find it anywhere. It was the traditional cake that got trotted out every year for birthdays. And my cousins mm-hmm. didn't have it. And and the last possible day, I moved more cookbooks from our house in Arlington out to the farmhouse. 
And one of those spiral bound notebooks of hers fell on the floor, the cover was already ripped off, and sliding out first page was her handwritten recipe for the noise birthday cake. And it was just one of those bizarre moments that I didn't even look at it. I just sent a note right up to my editor and said, I found this recipe, we need to work it in. I love, you rarely do you have like a breaking news moment in a cookbook, but this makes a lot of sense. It's like breaking family news. And so Brian, tell me about this recipe what makes it so special, the, the, the birthday cake that was uh, being, you know, over generations being being. It's a cake my dad grew up with. His dad grew up with it. His dad did. And it, you, it, most of it came out of the farmhouse that the family established in Nebraska in the mid-1850s. And it's just this white layer cake with white icing, kind of a meringue icing. And the weird thing is a semi-sweet or bittersweet or unsweetened melted chocolate poured in a big puddle on the top and it just kind of mm-hmm. drips down the side and, and mm-hmm. my mom hated making this cake and she <laughs> she did not want to make it for dad she didn't want to make it for us kids and only on a book tour in, in the last week did I realize how easy it could have been for her because we have there's five kids in the family but four of us are all born on the same day we have two sets of twins born three years apart on the same darn day and she could have knocked out a cake for all of us one day every year, and she still <laughs> refused to do it. But um, we, I ended up making that cake myself for everybody. Sounds like a cool recipe. I'll definitely um, look for that in the book, uh, in Red Truck Bakery Farmhouse Cookbook. I got a question about your, your backstory. It's interesting. You started as an art director working at the Washington Post and Smithsonian, and you started baking pies and breads on the weekends, and you eventually, you know, left editorial and, and decided to go full time. So I want to know a little bit about when you when was your like I'm going to go pro moment exactly. Well, um, I, I would leave Friday afternoons from work, either Smithsonian or the Post, and uh, go out to the farmhouse. Uh, ever an art director, I knew that farmhouse needed an old red truck out front when we bought it, so I <laughs> found one online. It turned out the seller was Tommy Hilfiger, and he trucked it down to us, and that's what sat in the front of the house, and now it sits in front of our bakery. But I would bake on Friday afternoons. I'd take that red truck, drive to a local um, country store, and uh, by 10 o'clock when they opened, I had cakes and pies and granola and bread sitting on the front table inside the store. And um, pretty soon, I'd get there early. I knew where the key was hidden, and there were already people in the parking lot waiting for these foods. So, so I kind of thought I was onto something. Um, then um, Marion Burroughs, New York Times food writer, emailed me and said, I was in an event in Rappahannock County, our next county over, and I had some of your pies and quiche, and I'd like to write a story about you for the New York Times for Christmas, and uh, would you mind? <laughs> it's like, not at all. And that story came out. I was still working um, in publishing, and um, it was on the front page of the, po- of the New York Times food section, and my little website hits went from 24 on Tuesday to 57,000 that next mm-hmm. day. And that kind of was the clue and the kick in my behind that said, look, you're onto something, run with it. That's a great story. I, I know Marion Burroughs, you know, one of uh, the New York Times and one of the, the plum tort, you know, the Marion Bur- Burroughs plum tort is a legendary recipe. So she knows her way around baked goods, absolutely. Um, and I have to say, like, 
when when that New York Times recipe or that article hit, um, was your phone ringing off the hook? Boy, it's we were getting orders. Dwight had to stay home and help bake, wrap, pack, and carry boxes. Uh, the mailman showed up. He looked at the front porch. He saw about a hundred boxes there and said, whoa, that's a load. And I said, I hate to tell you, but that's just what doesn't fit in the house. (laughs) There were about 320 parcels that first, those first few days. And uh, so, yeah, um, it wasn't the phone ringing as much as my computer just dinging with orders. So, Brian, let me ask you, you know, Marion, you know, those New York Times moments are happening. Those are great stories in the New York Times or media, you know, changes someone's life. But obviously you have the goods. So your your baking style, what makes it so special? And what's is there an intangible that is hard to describe that makes it so great? Um, I, I, I didn't. I do have an interest in baking and cooking. I, I'm, I'm not doing this green. I went through um, the CIA um, kind of cafe breads and pastries and French baking program um, twice. Uh, I went through L'Académie des Cuisines outside of D.C., um, which was launched by Roland Messonnier, who was the former White House pastry chef. And, um, you know, I I knew how to make kind of refined and fine items. But, you know, we're out in the boonies of Virginia. I'm I'm more of a rustic guy. I I don't want anything fussy. We don't make layer cakes. I just wanted like crostatas folded over fresh fruit or, or something. So it, it's much beefier and rustic, um, kind of free form, a lot of our things. Um, and I, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of a flavor pile honor. And yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Joe Yonan, food uh, editor of The Post, interviewed me last week and pointed out that you can't leave well enough alone. He said in a hopefully sort of nice way, where he says, you know, you have all the spices and, and fruit and a pie, but then your pie crust is made with also orange zest and lemon zest. And um, our, uh, he pointed out our, our Lexington bourbon cake has, has fresh ginger in it. I was inspired by a cocktail in Kentucky. But then it also has crystallized ginger, and then it has ginger root juice and um, then the glaze is a bourbon and um, ghost pepper glaze. So the, there's a little bite in the ghost peppers that echoes the, the ginger root. So, um, I mean, I, I may not leave well enough alone, and I'm always tinkering. But, but once it hits and we pull the trigger on it, then, then it is what it is, and it stays that way. Well, thanks for sending over those pastries. You, you, you sent some in the mail to us. We're, we're very happy that you did that, and I, I want to know— Ecom during the pandemic, you know, you hear about like Roy, the guy who did the Panettones, like that guy, like the internet broke around his Panettones. Were you having similar issues with fulfilling orders in the pandemic? I didn't know what to expect. We had to close down the dining room. I didn't let anybody go. I worked on a new website to so that people could order and we'd run it to a table in our back parking lot. And then I found a mm-hmm. funky door on the side of the building that we turned into like a, a tasty freeze takeout window. And um, all of a sudden we just we started getting orders that added up to, to those we get the week or two before Christmas. And you know, this was March or April and even into August. And um, we were totally unprepared for that. And I realized 
nobody wants to leave their house and they know um, where to get good food since they've been ordering online and we ship nationwide. And it just kept coming and coming and coming. I never, I'm a, I'm a good marketing guy, but I, somehow I missed that. And it just, it just tidal waved at us. And um, we ended up hiring more staff to keep up with it. And so we were sending out, you know, two or 300 cakes a day, almost all year long. Damn, that's like incredible volume. And it must be gratifying that your brand is getting out there to a lot of people who maybe didn't know about it. Yeah, it's it's been an eye opener. Uh, I I just started the book tour. I was adamant about going to Monterey and Napa, kind of where my story started five generations ago. And people are in line at these bookstores who already know about us, who already order. I'm I'm fully prepared to do my whole introduction song and dance about the bakery. But it's you know I'm 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 speaking to people who have already had it and know it and. The first people in line at a bookstore in Napa were there only to make me promise that the Lexington bourbon cake recipe was in the book. <laughs> you know, so mm. they're very familiar. That's cool. I really I respect it. I, I like I like when fans come out to book uh, cookbook launch events. It's really nice to see that. I want to ask you a couple baking questions because you know you are um, definitely a well trained baker. I mean, the CIA times two is. Did you actually do that correspondence, or were you up in Hyde Park? No, I went up there. I went up. It was over, um, I, I think, two different summers. I live up by those parts. It's a nice place to be in the summer. Yeah, in fact, the the instructor, my bread instructor, realized I really had a passion, so he, he did what I couldn't have done online and said, do you want to come in at 3 in the morning and start baking for the cafe? I said, yes. So I love that. So let me ask you, you know, apples are a big you know product in the fall, and we're going to be, you know, putting this out pretty soon in the fall, and it's getting chilly outside. So I got to ask you about baking with apples. Are there any apples in particular that we should seek out um, for baking? Any qualities that you look for in an apple? Well, you're talking to a guy with a bakery in the middle of apple country. We're right, 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 right. right in the Shenandoah Valley. We're really lucky. I can just call these orchards around us and they show up with what we want. But um, truth be told, um, we always mix them up. I always have a combo. Um, I'm usually uh, using Mutsus when we can get those, Golden Delicious, Honeycrisp, Granny Smith, um, Rome's. Um, mm-hmm. You know, if it comes down to it, it, the Granny Smith is the workhouse workhorse, but I really like um, what, what a few different varieties add to, um, add to the pie. Yeah, it's smart to blend it. I guess that what that will do then is potentially give you a more varied, not varied, does it even it out to a more uniform flavor, I guess? Well, it makes it more complex. And um, there's there's a little hits of sweet and there's some tang. And I don't think you can get all of that out of one or two apples. And it's 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 a it's a good combo. And, you know, if we can't get a variety, then we'll substitute something similar. But... Um, these guys growing this stuff always have ideas on what, what to su- supplement with if we can't get a, a, a variety right then. Super interesting. I like that thought. And, and, and is there a pastry in the book that you feel you're very savvy with marketing that you think could go viral? Like, I like to ask that. Like, is there a, is there a recipe that you, that you think has a shot? There, um, there's a lot of involved recipes that are worth the effort. There's an incredibly simple recipe that it probably offers more bang for the buck than anything else. And um, 
I, I like I like that to um, when kids are asking um, what to make, or maybe their their parents are asking, and it's it's our buckle, and um, mm-hmm. I kind of wanted to do. I, I was enamored with, and it's probably more of an East Coast or Southern thing or New England thing, but it's pan dowdies and grumps and slumps, slumps and uh, buckles. And this this is just a, a really quick one bowl, one mixer, um, light batter that's, as I want to do, I also add lemon and orange zest to it. So it's kind of a lemony, buttery, um, light batter that then kids can just press sliced peaches, sliced strawberries, full blueberries into, just into the top, dimpling it in, just dumping um, coarse brown sugar, uh, like sugar in the raw, on top and baking it off. And it's that, that, that uh, turbinado sugar offers a good crunch and crackle when it comes out of the oven. And yeah. it also protects the, the fruit from burning in the oven. And that and like- is so easy and it's, it's so good. I love that it's a bit of a, a, a force field or a protection shield against burning, and we don't talk about buckles enough. I feel in in, in dessert, right? We don't we don't go there. In fact, <laughs> in, in the first book, we did a pandowdy, but it was it was my riff, and it was a savory pandowdy, and um, I, I want to continue with that. Let's talk about Virginia cuisine. I feel like uh, Virginia. I I love Virginia. My my sister in law used to run a restaurant in Richmond for years, and I, my my in laws live in Virginia Beach. Um, I'd like to get your thoughts on maybe some some of the heritage dishes of Virginia or foods of Virginia that maybe our listeners don't know because I think it's a really clearly a rich um, region of our country for food. I, I think the oysters are some of the best in the world by far. They are great. We're lucky to have the Chesapeake near us. Um, there's I, I love working with crab and shrimp that come out of there. But boy, Virginia, you know, I think there's there's two or three things you got to start with, and it, it would be okra, um, leeks, or sorry, ramps, and mm-hmm. um, sorghum. And yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I like to play with all those, hopefully not in the same dish. Leeks and sorghum? I mean, let's go. It's like a kind of a, a quick fire challenge right there. Yeah, I misspoke when I said leeks, but it, it's really ramps, and you got to find some guy that's going to go up to a secret spot in the mountains and carve them out with a screwdriver. But they show up with just baskets and baskets, and it's all dirty and muddy and rocky, um, but it's it's great tasting. Real nice. So are you working on a third? I mean, I feel a trilogy always rolls off the tongue. Is there? A tr- is this a trilogy? You know, I, it, it, might, it might step right over into four. I got two in the works. Um, oh, one wow. thing I need to mention also is uh, related to your earlier question, and this is a dessert that goes way back, deep, deep back in Virginia, and that's the Virginia peanut pie. I don't know if you encountered that out here, but it's – I don't find it anywhere else. It's it's a staple here, and now it's only in the tiniest little oldest mom-and-pop diners. And um, I, I kind of did a riff on that and lightened it up with, with our chocolate cake crumbs and coconut down in the bottom so it's just not one big gooey mess. I have to say I'm only familiar with Reese's peanut butter cup pie. So I have to tell you, I have to ask you about peanut. what is peanut, peanut pie of Virginia? Well, think of a pecan pie with with uh, peanuts instead of pecans, but then my okay. my cake and coconut bottom layer that the goop kind of goes in there and moves around it, so it's not just cloying mass, chunky 
froth. Yeah. So yeah, let's let's hear a little bit about your other two projects because I guess you clearly um, are are moving forward with more. I love it. Well, there's there's one that, that dovetails nicely to what we've been talking about, and it's kind of based on the grandmother thing. But it's also I, I put out the call to all my followers on Instagram and Facebook on December 26th and said, what did you not get for Christmas around the table that you really miss? I mean, there's like, you know, Swedish grandmothers that were around to make something that aren't around anymore or, or as it carries down generations, um, nobody's making those great things that maybe your dad might be pining for. Mm-hmm. So I, I kind of want to do a book on dessert revival. Um, and I'm I've also been working on a book of about 30 um, profiles of chefs, um, distillers, bakers in other cities throughout the South who did what we did. And that's going to a kind of downtrodden or, or boarded up neighborhood. Ours was Main Street that every business just about was closed. And um, they, they renovated a historic mercantile building and put in a food business and it brought the town or the neighborhood or the alley or the block back to life. And um, there's some good good stories out there. And um, I, I'd love to continue this this book on, on those guys. Fascinating stuff. I feel American heritage cooking is something that um, definitely we can't get enough of it, I think. And you've got a cool point of view and I, I, love, I love your work. We asked all guests on the Taste Podcast if there was a dream cookbook or food book project that you could work on without the burden of time or the burden of budget, what would that be? And I know you're already working on two, so, but like, let's think outside maybe your, what's the dream, dream project? You know, I, I don't know. I, I, I was prepared to tell you about um, that chef project, which I, I'm calling Fixin' to Eat because it's about renovating old buildings and, and firing up food. But I'm, I'm kind of intrigued with old apples and heritage uh, varieties and maybe what they are and, and who how can we bring some of those back and why and what they deliver in food. I mean, that, that kind of goes back to your very first question, and I, I think that's what got me going on it is, you know, apples and what do you use and why are they so different? I feel like that uh, is – I feel like that's a, a concept that could definitely – be hashed out in, in a great way, and I know your 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 pastry, your the technique you use is is really it's not I wouldn't use the word advanced, but it's it's definitely a high level. Um, and I, I hope you can work on that book, Brian Noyce. Thank you for joining the Taste Podcast. All right, I appreciate it. Thanks very much. The Taste Podcast is hosted by me, Matt Rodbard. It's produced by Pat Stango and edited by Clayton Gumber. Theme music by Steve Rydell. Visit Taste Online at tastecooking.com and make sure to subscribe to our newsletter. Thanks for listening.